in this series, Pray Like Jesus, we're working through some of the prayers of Jesus, and we're going to talk about this prayer in extreme circumstances where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think one of the great prayer events in the Bible and certainly in the life of Jesus. We're going to talk about prayer for our enemies when we observe Jesus from the cross praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them. We're going to talk about this prayer for commitment, which is the last prayer that Jesus breathes as a man walking on this planet and living on this planet as he dies upon the cross saying, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit and what that prayer means and how we can use it in our own lives. There are great prayer events in the life of Jesus. He not only taught us to pray uh, the, our Father or the Lord's Prayer, but he taught us to pray with the parable of the persistent widow who just would not quit and with the parable of the publican and the sinner, the one so full of himself that he could not even see God, the other so humiliated by his sin he could not raise his eyes to heaven. Particularly in the prayer in John chapter 17, another of the three, I would say, great prayer events recorded in the life of Jesus. You have him praying for the disciples. And he follows that prayer with this statement to Peter, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. In John 17, he prayed for those who believed on him. And now he says to Simon, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. A very important and wonderful prayer for us to pray for one another as we go through all the ups and downs of life. Well, I've mentioned two of the great prayer events in the life of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane and John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But I think there is another, and it connects to that high priestly prayer in that Jesus was praying for his disciples in John 17, but he prayed for them again in an event that is recorded in Luke chapter 6. And I want you to turn over there now or get your phone uh, Bible on, on the screen. And uh, some of you I know are reading it. Some of you come up to me afterwards and say, look, I'm reading the Bible from my phone. All right, this is good. I got a screenshot of three or four people with their phones out there. And I thought, okay, I hope they're reading the Bible on their phone. How many of you read the Bible on your phone? Let me see. All right, this is good. I do the same thing. The Word of God is living and powerful, and it has gone places it has never gone before because of Bible applications on our phones. So I know that's true. Of course, some of us like print and paper, and I hope that you have a print and paper Bible that you can scratch around in because I make all kind of notes as I read in the text. But I want to read from Luke 12, uh, 6, verse 12, where the Scripture says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus 
spends the night in prayer, and in the morning calls to him his disciples. How many? Dozens? Hundreds? Thousands? I don't know how many showed up that morning when he called his disciples to him, but I know this. He chose from among the group 12 of them. He chose 12. Only 12. Some he did not choose that morning. There were those who maybe wanted to be chosen, wanted to be part of the inner group, but their names were not called. I don't know how he did this, but he went through the 12, and as he called their names, perhaps Peter left his place in the crowd and walked up to stand beside Jesus. And then James and John and Andrew and Thomas and Judas, they left their place in the crowd and they came to stand with Jesus. Not everybody heard their name that morning. Some were probably disappointed. Some may be bitterly disappointed that their names were not called. Why did Jesus do this? Why call 12 and only 12? Why of the 12 select three, Peter, James, and John, to be the inner circle, to call them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, to pray with him in his distress? Why only three, Peter, James, and John? Why not Andrew? That would have made two pairs of brothers. Why not four instead of three? Surely Andrew was disappointed when his name was not called to go to pray with Jesus. And yet Jesus did this. And he chose one to be the leader, Peter. Among them, they could each make a case for why they should be first, why they were the greatest. They could argue that Jesus had maybe made a wrong choice, but Jesus chose a leader named Peter. He chose three to be in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He chose 12 out of the disciples that gathered before him that morning, his brother James soon-to-be pastor of the Jerusalem church, was not called that morning. His brother Jude, who would one day write the epistle, the letter of Jude in our New Testament, was not called that morning. Mary and Martha, they had a brother named Lazarus that Jesus loved, but he was not called that morning. Jesus chose 12. He did it because he had to. It was necessary. To accomplish his mission on this earth, he needed to choose 12. And the decision rested on his heart so heavily that he spent the night in prayer. He spent the night in prayer to God and then chose 12. Do people decisions keep you up at night? One thing for sure we should learn from this is pray over people decisions, right? Amen. Jesus prayed over this people decision. He spent the night in prayer. You would think 30 seconds would have done it. Father, which 12 should I choose? Son, choose Peter, James, John, 
Andrew, Bartholomew, Judas, and go through the list. And there you got to 12, 30 seconds, and you lay down and go to sleep. But anybody who makes personnel decisions knows it doesn't happen like that. You don't get, the, I mean, we wish, we wish. Somebody in the pew right now is contemplating buying a house maybe or a car. And you're thinking about putting your name on the dotted line and you wish God would say to you, Mary, buy the car. That's what you wish. And when you get in the place of prayer, you want it to happen like that. But even for Jesus, it is an all-night prayer meeting with the Father, praying unto God. Why? Because nothing Jesus does in his decision-making process will so affect his own personal life as choosing these 12. This morning, when he gets up and calls the disciples to him, is a life-changing event for Jesus. He's going to 12, have 12 companions, and he's choosing them so they will be with him. That's the first thing. From now on, when he rolls out of bed in the morning, poof, there's 12 guys. He goes to have breakfast. There's Peter sitting there. Lunch, there they are. He wants some social time. Here they come. Everywhere he turns for the next three and a half years, these 12 men are there. He walks down the road and they're there. Social events, gatherings, meetings, just the regular activities of life. He has chose 12 people to be with him. His life is fundamentally changed. Just as your life is when you choose somebody to be with you. I want you to be my administrator. I want you to be my associate. And you know your life is going to change because you're inviting somebody into the inner circle of your life at work. When you say, I want you, be mine, it changes your life. And there ought to be a weight there. And perhaps part of the all-night experience of Jesus in prayer was realizing how fundamentally his life would change when these 12 people were selected to be with him. And he would send them out to preach, yes. And he would send them out to cast out demons, yes. But primarily, first and foremost, they were going to be with him. They would be his companions, his inner circle and it was changing his life to make this decision and I'll tell you there were many times when Jesus was going ah, don't you guys ever get it have I been so long with you you still don't understand why are you arguing about these things over and over again for the next three and a half years there is frustration in the voice of Jesus disappointment in the voice of Jesus consternation in the voice of Jesus. Why can't you trust me? Why can't you believe? Where's your faith? Over and over again, these kind of events happen. It changes his life to gather these 12 around him. They are not perfect people. Thomas is the doubter. I got to see it. I'm not believing unless I see it. Peter speaks before he thinks all the time, bursts out with things. James and John argue about who should be on the right hand and who should be on the left in the kingdom. These thun, sons of thunder. And of course you've got Judas. 
No wonder he spent the night in prayer. You have a big decision coming up. You're about to make a significant hire in your company. You're inviting somebody into a, the social circle of your life. You're initiating a friendship with someone. Maybe you're courting somebody and contemplating saying, I do. A couple told me this morning, we're going to get married. We're going to say, I do. And we know how fundamentally life changes when we say to somebody, be mine. And Jesus is saying, be my apostles. You twelve, and only you. It will also fundamentally change the lives of these people whose names he calls this morning. Their lives will never be the same having spent this time with Jesus. They don't realize how fundamentally their lives will change. Eventually, Peter will say, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. But Jesus knows that Peter's future includes, as tradition says, being crucified upside down. James wants to be on the right hand, and Jesus knows that James will be the first to die after he himself dies on the cross. In fact, the story of these 12 will be, 11 of them, tradition says, will die violently, Thomas in India. John alone will die of natural causes, and he exiled on a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. That's what awaits these 12 chosen people that Jesus calls this morning. And they're saying in their heart what we just prayed. Lord, I give it all to you. All that is within me, everything I have, I give it all to you. Tim has led us in prayer after prayer. I give it all to you. That's why Jesus spent the night in prayer. He knew what it meant more than they for James and John's names to be called that morning. He knew what it meant for them. They didn't know, but he knew. And it weighed upon his heart. When you talk to people that you're about to employ, you need to keep that in mind. For a young person who's about to choose a residency or about to take a new position or deciding where to go to school, these decisions change your life. And the fellows who are calling you they have positions they want to fill, but they need to be fully aware how much a life change it is for you. When Tim Johnson came here, he and Mary Beth, it changed my life, Tim. It changed my life. I had somebody tell me today, I just love Tim Johnson. I said, what? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I knew when I had that discussion with you, and I think I told you this. You know, it's going to change my life. It's going to change Charles's life. It's going to change your life to have Tim Johnson come and be the worship leader for First Baptist New Orleans. It changes our lives to some degree. We know that. But for Tim and Mary Beth, what I was saying to them in Georgia was, I want you to leave your family. 
I want you to leave your friends. I want you to sell this house you've had for six years. I want you to leave this place where you've been leading worship for eight years and this church where you've been serving for three years. I want you to leave everything you've built for the last years of your life and I want you to transplant yourself to New Orleans. And for Tim and Mary Beth, it is a dramatic, life-changing thing to say, yes, I'll do that. And every time you make a personnel decision and you're interviewing these college graduates and you're trying to fill positions in your company, you remember what a life-changing thing it is for somebody to come when you call. That, too, is in the heart of Jesus. I've wondered if maybe Peter, James, and John were up all night. You think Jesus took applications? What do you think? You think he did interviews? If you'd like to be interviewed for the circle, please come. I don't know the process he used, but if the disciples were aware that he was making the choice that morning, I'll bet you some of them stayed up all night. Yeah, they might have pulled an all-nighter too. It's that important. Jesus prayed to God all night knowing how his life would change when he chose these 12, knowing how their lives would change forever if they came out of that crowd and stood with him. And we remember that too. You don't make a decision that is more complex than a people decision, than a hiring decision, than a friendship decision, or even a decision about marriage. It is so complex. People are so complex. You can, you can get all the stats on a car and make that call. You can get the stats on a house and make that call. But when you talk about somebody, it boils down to the person so often. You say, I want to be a doctor. And you go train for three years and then you go through four years of residency and maybe some more. I don't know how many Dr. Jerry Pound spent. I think he was seven years getting ready to be what he is today. And then you get out and as soon as you start practice they decide that you need to be managing this division or whatever and all of a sudden all the training that you've done as a physician or a lawyer or an engineer or a teacher or whatever, all of that is now not your main problem. Now the main thing you're doing is managing people. And it's harder than anything else you do in your job. Managing people. How many times have I heard people talk about this? It's people that make my job difficult and make my job hard. I can do the numbers. I can be the engineer. I can crank that out for them. I'm a fine CPA. But managing people is the thing. And we go off and we, we assess all the places where we could be employed. And we look at all the statistics and we come back home and we say to mom and dad, boy, I really like that guy at that job opportunity over in Iowa. He was so sweet and kind and so competent. He really made me feel good. And we make the decision not on the basis of all the numbers and the facts and things, but the people that we met that cared about us and we cared about them and we connected somehow. These are people decisions. So many of the school decisions, work decisions, they're people decisions. And when you get ready to have a life change or help somebody else with a life change, that's a moment to pray. That's a day to 
pray. That's a night to pray. You say, what am I praying about? What is Jesus praying about all night? I think you pray for people wisdom. You pray for people wisdom. You've got a people situation. And you need wisdom. And facts alone are not enough. James says, this is the brother of the Lord Jesus who was passed over on this morning, by the way. His name was not called. He wrote, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to all liberally without finding fault and it will be given you. Isn't that beautiful? Say, do you lack wisdom? You're working with people, you've got problems, difficulties, opportunities, hires to make, you're wondering what to do. Pray for people wisdom. What are you doing when you bow your head in prayer about this situation at work? First of all, you're praying, Father, let my heart be like your heart. You're praying for the Father's heart. That's the most important thing. You want the Father's heart when you make this call. You can assess the resume, but you want the Father's heart. You can make the call at work. You do it every day, but you want the Father's heart. Why do I want the Father's heart? Because I want to be wise. I want the wisdom that comes from God, and that only comes in a relationship with God. So I spend time in prayer, getting ready for that appointment that I know is coming the next day. I'm praying about it because I want the Father's heart, the Father's eyes, the Father's ears. I want to do this the Father's way. Some of you know that Francis Collins wrote the book, uh, The Language of God. He is the head of the National Institute of Health, and he was mentioned in the paper last week, and it reminded me again about him and about my sister-in-law, Monica Justice. Both of them do research on DNA. Francis Collins was the president of the International Genome uh, Group that mapped the genome, the DNA of humans. And Monica Justice, my sister-in-law, was the president of the International Society that mapped the DNA of the mouse. She introduced me to Francis Collins' book, The Language of God. In the book, Francis Collins, who is a premier scientist, talked about how science is a way of knowing. And he says, I affirm that. It's important. It's a way that we know the world, he said, but... Faith is another way of knowing. We all understand that you can gather the facts and still make a poor decision. That a person who knows stuff isn't necessarily wise. So what you want is the wisdom God gives that arises out of a relationship with him. That way of knowing that is trusting in God as you deal with the people problem that faces you, with the opportunity, with the interview that's coming, or the interview you're going to give. You pray, Lord, let my heart be like yours. Shape my heart like yours. So that if I have to say no to this person, and Jesus said no to a crowd, he said yes to 12 and no to everybody else. My no does not knock them off their faith 
It doesn't send them into a tailspin. We can't be responsible for that all the time. But if we have the Father's heart, we can say no in a different way. And yes, in a different way. We can bring to that interview the wisdom of God that preserves the person while saying we're going to go a different direction. Jesus did this somehow. He chose the three and yet the twelve stayed with him. I want the Father's heart. That's what the wisdom is. Pray for people wisdom. Pray for the wisdom to integrate that person into your team because part of what you're doing is inviting somebody in not only to your inner circle but the inner circle of others. And they're becoming part of a group. And so we want this to be a good fit for everybody. So pray, Lord, help this person be the right person to join in what we're doing. That's a wonderful prayer to pray. Not only for you, but for the person that you're inviting into your group. Pray for the best, not just good. We've all heard of the book Good to Great, maybe read it about how companies become great over time. Not just good, but great. And we want that. We want to be able to choose the best. When Jesus picked these 12, I think he was thinking about what is best? What's the highest mark that I can reach? And I believe that's what he wants us to think about too as we build our teams, as we invite people into our lives. We want what is best. So pray that God will give his best in the situation and pray to be able to trust him after you've made the decision. Some of you are spending tremendous emotional time berating yourself that you had to say no. And it is emotionally difficult for me and for you as well. But what we need to do is pray that the Lord will help us trust him in, in this decision and that we can entrust the others to God as well. That faith is a component to this conversation, this interview I'm going to have. And dealing with these people, I'm dealing in faith. I'm trusting God. And once the call is made, I trust him and I go on. We've made the decision. We've done our best. We've looked to the Lord. We've prayed about it. We have confidence in his work in our life, his communication of wisdom to us. And so we move forward boldly. And then you have Judas. Pray about people challenges. You will have them if you've not had them already. You will invite somebody into your life who turns out to have a very deep fault that maybe you didn't see before you invited them in. It will happen to you as it happened to Jesus. Jesus made that sermon in John chapter 6 that was so startling and so difficult and the multitude started to leave him and, and Jesus turned to the 12 he had selected he said, are you fellows also going to go away? And Peter speaks for the group when he says, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life and we become convinced that you are the Holy One, the Son of God. You know how Jesus responds to him in that moment? Jesus says to Peter, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Did you know Jesus said that? 
Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot? He called his name that morning. Judas stepped out of the crowd and came up to the front, but it wasn't long before it was evident that Judas had his own agenda. And sometimes that happens to us. We call somebody into the team, into the inner circle of our life, and discover after they're there, they got their own agenda. They're working some other thing. They're doing something else, not what we call them to do. Or maybe we discover that they are susceptible to a terrible temptation. That they have a weakness in their character. That the devil and other people are exploiting And we realize we invited somebody into the team that we cannot trust. I've wondered, once Jesus realized if he didn't before, and I don't know when all of these things happened, Jesus realized that Judas had a different agenda, was going a different direction, and was susceptible to lying, disloyalty, and treachery for money. Money meant enough to this man that he would surrender his principle. Once that was evident to Jesus, why didn't he fire him? You're out of the group. The scripture says that Jesus kept Judas in the twelve in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas had a purpose in the inner circle. And though it was unsettling, and difficult and the comments of Jesus make it evident that it was so yet he stayed there all the way till he willingly departed I'm not saying we don't fire people when we discover things like that that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is that there are people challenges that are coming your way if they're not there already and those people challenges must be met with prayer and we only prevail in the deepest, most difficult and perplexing problems that we face in family units, in friendship circles, and at work, when we come to the Father and we say, I want your heart. I want to know the wisdom of your ways. I want to handle this in faith. And I want to trust you in the process of the conversation, the difficult conversation that I must have. You know, prayer is so powerful. It's so powerful. You're worried, worried, worried about what you're going to do with this situation. And if you got on your knees by your bed and you committed your life again to God, I give it all to you, everything that is within me, and you prayed through, you would rise from your knees with a new sense of who you are in Christ, a renewed sense of your purpose in the world, A new confidence that God is going to take care of all the things that you cannot control when you make this call. A new trust in the ability of God to handle all the repercussions of what's about to happen. A burden will roll off your shoulders as you spend the time in prayer with the most difficult things that you face After the early service, someone came to me and said, 
I decided I was going to have a prayer in my classroom this week. And so I led out in prayer. And she said, after I prayed, a little boy came up in a minute and he said, would you pray for me? Could you have the class pray for me? A relative of his was murdered and he wanted the prayers of his class. Well, the teacher had intended to pray, you know, dear God bless us, amen. And now she had a prayer that is, this is a more difficult thing to formulate. The words don't come as easily. So she knew God would give her strength and she led her class and said, class, we've had something happen. One of our classmates is dealing with this situation. She told him what it was. And she prayed for the boy. She said, when I dismissed class, instead of leaving the room, the students met in little groups here and there, and someone was hugging that little boy who was grieving the loss of his loved one. And there was another group over here talking about things and, and earnestly speaking to one another. And she said, it transformed that room when I opened up in prayer. Amen. Heaven opens when you pray. You've got a burden on your shoulders. You don't know what to do. Seek the Lord in prayer. Pray for his wisdom. Seek his heart. When you stand in his heart, do what you feel directed to do and led to do with the circumstances, situation, and people involved. And trust that God will carry you through. When you are betrayed, it's hard to get over it. I reached into the closet 20 years ago, not here, but at another church. I was going to pull out my Gibson 12-string that had been my companion for 20 years of traveling with my brothers. I'd taken it to South America and Central America and Canada, hauled it around all over the place. It'd fallen in the fire and in the flood. You know how these things happen. It was precious to me. And I opened that case, and the guitar was gone. I said, I said, what? A thief had gotten in my closet, in my study, and taken that Gibson 12-string. And I found out later, had pawned it, along with $10,000 worth of material from the church. He was on our team, and he betrayed us. He lied to us and he stole from us. And you know, years later, I still think about the moment I reached in that closet for that guitar and something precious to me was gone. It's happened to you. It's happened to you. Some of you have lost something you cannot get back. It was stolen from you by somebody that you trusted and you still think about the moment you knew it was gone the only way to handle such a betrayal and disloyalty is to go to the father who loves us completely and well and say Lord this has happened to me I give my heart to you 
I don't want my faith to fail because someone else's faith did. Peter, I have prayed for you. You're about to go into the storm. This team's going to be torn apart. Everybody's going to run their individual way. Somebody's going to betray me, and you yourself are going to deny me. But I have prayed for you in the middle of this people storm you're walking into. And this is my prayer, Peter, that your faith will not fail. When you see Judas turn me over to the soldiers, that your faith will not fail. When you see James and John running, that your faith will not fail. When you yourself deny me, that when you have turned, your faith restored, you will strengthen the brothers. Bow with me, please. Lord, I pray for someone in the middle of a storm today that their faith will not fail. Though perhaps others have betrayed them, though something precious has been stolen, that their faith will not fail. I pray for that one who feels like there's a wall between them and God. And faith seems to be so far away and so impossible. And I pray today that you would fan that tiny flame of faith in them, that their faith will not fail, that the little mustard seed almost impossible to see in the heart of hearts will grow into a flame again. I pray for that person who's got a tough week ahead dealing with people that their faith will not fail. Lord, I pray for that marriage, for that spouse, that her faith will not fail, that his faith will not fail. I pray for that friend who's lost somebody important, that her faith will not fail. By your Holy Spirit, increase our faith, we pray. Do your work in us today. In the name of the faithful Lord, we ask it. Amen.